In Nazi-occupied Paris, a group of filmmakers founded an organization called Comité de Libération du Cinéma Français, who made short films about the Maquis and filmed the documentary Journal de la Résistance, La Libération de Paris, during the Battle for Paris in 1944. Jaillit des profondeurs de la résistance, des affiches sortent des murs, les appels longtemps contenus, les cris d'espérance et les ordres. They also published their own weekly underground film journal called Le Cran Français. Among the sponsors of the group were Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camel. After liberation, the Le Cran Français continued publication, and in 1948, published an essay by Alexander Astro, a film critic titled From Pen to Camera and From Camera to Pen, which would serve as the starting point for a revolution in the art of cinema. Astro proclaimed that, quote, the cinema is quite simply becoming a means of expression, just as all the other arts have been before it, and in particular, painting and the novel. After having been successively a fairground attraction, an amusement analogous to boulevard theater or a means of preserving the images of an era, it is gradually becoming a language. By a language, I mean a form in which and by which an artist can express his thoughts, however abstract they may be, or translate his obsessions exactly as he does in the contemporary essay or novel. That is why I would like to call this new age of cinema the age of camera stylo. The idea of a director being more than a person whose job it is to take the script and turn it into a film within a very strict set of boundaries, but rather an artist themselves using the camera as a pen to write a story, sparked lively discussion and debate amongst the other philosophers and critics of the day. In 1951, the magazine Carré du Cinéma debuted as a place for critics, including Jean-Luc Godard, François Truffaut, Claude Chabrol, Jacques Rivette, and Eric Romer to discuss and debate film theory, widely regarded as the first publication of its kind. The critics were particularly disdainful for the hidebound films of their French contemporaries, most famously in Truffaut's 1954 essay Un certain tendance du cinéma français, where he decried the current practice of turning safe literary works into unimaginative films. They pointed to the films of Jean Renoir and Jean Vigo, in addition to the Hollywood directors Orson Welles, John Ford, Alfred Hitchcock, and Nicholas Ray as what cinema should be striving towards. Soon the critics were taking matters into their own hands, starting with Truffaut's film, The 400 Blows. In addition to Hiroshima Mon Amour by Alain René in 1959, 
Il me semble l'avoir compris. Que tu es si jeune, si jeune, que tu n'es encore à personne précisément. Cela me plaît. Non, ce n'est pas ça. And Goddard's film Breathless in 1960. New York Herald Tribune. Je te le rends, il n'y a pas d'horoscope. Qu'est-ce que c'est l'horoscope L'horoscope, c'est l'avenir. J'ai envie de savoir l'avenir, pas toi Moi aussi. New York Herald Tribune. Qu'est-ce qu'il y a Rien, je te regarde. The new style of movie making aimed to break as many of the stylistic conventions as possible, hoping to keep the audience constantly aware that they were watching a film, a piece of art, and not just being carried along by a static narrative. These films included jump cuts, shots that moved outside of the usual 180-degree access of movement, improvised dialogue, extras purposely moving in and out of shots, rapid scene changes, and characters breaking the fourth wall and directly addressing the audience. All techniques that are well-worn tropes today, but were simply revolutionary in late 50s cinema. The subject matter of these films were also frequently very different from the typical features of the time. Existential themes centering on the absurdity of existence told through sarcasm and irony. This group of young intellectuals creating ironic art around the absurdity of everyday life in a jarring and yet somehow pleasing manner became known as the new wave of French cinema. Welcome to Moving in Stereo, a podcast about the history of new wave music told through the stories and the music of the bands who made it. I'm your host, Dylan Johnson. In Providence, Rhode Island, in late 1973, Chris Franz was asked by a fellow student at the Rhode Island School of Design if he would help him create a soundtrack for his senior project, a short film. Franz agreed and was introduced to an ex-student, David Byrne, who would be contributing guitar to the soundtrack. When they were done, the two agreed to form a band along with two other classmates, David Anderson on guitar and Hank Stoller on bass. Byrne had been in the same incoming class as Franz, but had left after one year to transfer to the Maryland College of Art and to hitchhike across the country. He had returned, but he hadn't been readmitted, so he was rooming with other students in Providence. They began rehearsing Kinks and Who songs alongside soul songs like Love and Happiness by Al Green. One afternoon, Byrne dropped in on Franz, who was hanging out with his girlfriend, Tina Weymouth, and showed him lyrics he'd written. He was stuck on the bridge, which he had asked a Japanese girl to write some words in Japanese for, but once she heard what he was writing about, she declined. Franz told David that Tina spoke French, and perhaps she might be able to write some words for him. Mon espoir 
Translated, the bridge is what I did that night, what she said that night, realizing my hopes, I launch myself towards a glorious destiny. Franz contributed a few verses. Burn already had the chorus. And the band had written their first original song. During this time, Franz and Burn also wrote Warning Sign, which would wind up on their second LP. Although I can't seem to find any confirmation of this, I have to believe this track served as an inspiration for the Bauhaus single, Bella Lugosi's Dead, the following year. With two originals and a repertoire of cover songs, the band was ready to play for audiences, so they became The Artistics. The Artistics played a grand total of four gigs in 1974 before the band members graduated from school, with Franz and his girlfriend Tina Weymouth headed to New York City in the fall, where they agreed to meet up with Byrne. Soon the three were living in a loft in the Bowery, painting, writing songs, and rehearsing. On weekends, they would walk down the street to a club called CBGB and catch performances by Television, Patti Smith, and a band called Angel and the Snake that featured Deborah Harry on vocals. Franz and Byrne asked her if she'd like to sing with them sometime, but she declined, saying that she was already in a band. By late 1974, Weymouth had bought a Fender Precision bass guitar and began to rehearse with her roommates. Friends and fellow artists would come and visit the loft, and the trio would play their songs for them and ask opinions on potential names. Vogue Dots, The Billionaires, The Tunnel Tones, The Videos. One visitor, Wayne Zeev, said, I was reading TV Guide and they had a glossary of television cameraman terms. When you have a shot of just the announcer's head and shoulders, it's called a talking head. It's the most boring, but also the most informative format in TV. I think you should call your band Talking Heads. Chris and Tina made up t-shirts with the name on the front and wore them around to gauge people's reactions, which were mostly positive, so the name of this band became Talking Heads. Tina Weymouth's shirt is on display at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. By May 1975, 
Talking Heads felt they were good enough to play out, so Franz walked into CBGB and got the band an audition opening for the Ramones on a Thursday night. As the group were clearing the stage after their audition, Johnny Ramone told Hilly, the owner of CBGB, Yeah, they suck, so they can open for us. They'll make us look good. Talking Heads became regular performers at CBGB, and soon record companies began to express interest in the whole CBGB scene, with the critical success of Patti Smith's debut album Horses in late 1975, driving label execs to the CD club in search of the newest musical trend. CBS Records brought the band in to record a two-track live demo. Berserkly Records also had the band record a demo and offered them a deal, but the band declined after hearing the demo and agreeing they needed to work on their studio craft a bit more. Seymour Stein, president of Sire Records, went to CBGB to check out the Ramones and was mesmerized by Talking Heads performing Love Building on Fire. Which is my He offered the group a record deal on the spot and was stunned when the band said, we're not ready yet, thanks, maybe later? By 1976, the CBGB scene was now getting written up in the New York Times, in addition to the Village Voice, and even some national coverage from the likes of Lester Bangs, who adored the Ramones but seemed mystified by talking heads. Finally, after a week or so of seeing them open for the Ramones, Bangs cheerfully remarked to Chris Franz that he got them now. You guys are so uncool, you're cool. The Modern Lovers were a Boston band that had broken up in 1974 and released their only record in summer of 1976, a record which is viewed today as an important precursor to punk. One, two, three, four, five, six. During a visit home to Pittsburgh, Chris Franz is told by his mother that he should look up the nephew of one of her co-workers, Ernie Scheuer, who was also a musician living in New York City. He was a bass player in a band, The Modern Lovers. A few weeks later, Weymouth and Franz bumped into Scheuer in a cafe, and they asked him what their old keyboard player, Jerry Harrison, was up to these days. Scheuer told them that Harrison was enrolled in graduate school at Harvard and gave them Harrison's number. They called him up and asked him to join the band and booked a gig in Cambridge just so he could hear them play. 
Harrison agreed to come down to New York and jam with him, but made it clear he wouldn't join the band until they had a record contract. Finally, on November 1st, 1976, Talking Heads signed a record deal with Seymour Stein and Sire Records, and Chris France and Tina Weymouth got engaged. Soon, Talking Heads had recorded their first single, Love Building on Fire. I can't define love when it's not The trio traveled back up to Boston to get Harrison up to speed on their songs and then gigged in New England and Toronto before heading back to New York City to work on their first album. Despite not really clicking with producer Tony Bongiovi, the sessions went well with the band learning how to record, which is a different skill than playing live. They began to add little flourishes to their music, even if they wound up not being used such as a cello on Psycho Killer, which has since been released on deluxe editions as the acoustic version of the track. I passed out hours ago. I'm sadder than you'll ever know. I close my eyes on this sunny day. Say something once, why say it again? Psycho Killer. After completing the recording sessions, Talking Heads went on a tour of Europe and the UK as the opening act for the Ramones. During the UK leg, the band first met Brian Eno, who attended one of Talking Heads' showcases and invited them over for tea the next day. Eno would go on to produce several of the group's albums over the next several years. The group returned from their tour to complete overdubs and vocals for their debut album, taking a break for Franz and Weymouth's wedding. The album, Talking Heads 77, would drop in early September of 1977, along with the lead single, Uh-Oh, Love Comes to Town. The album was hailed by the music press as a bold statement by an important new band, although the sales were middling. The band set out on a tour of colleges in support of the record. Early in the tour, Talking Heads would record an invitation-only show at CBGB, which was recorded and used to help the band land gigs, and was played on the nationally syndicated radio program, The King Biscuit Flower Hour. A few months later, they would record another live gig, albeit it was live in Northern Studios in Massachusetts. The name of this song is New Feeling. That's what it's about.
recording would be distributed by Sire Records to radio stations across the country and would wind up as the A-side to their first live album, The Name of This Band is Talking Heads. By the end of 1977, they had played across the country in various small venues, including gigs in Boston where they met up with David Robinson, the drummer from Harrison's previous band, The Modern Lovers, who was talking to them about his new band, The Cars, that had just started recording together, and one in Atlanta where they shared the bill with an up-and-coming act from England, Elvis Costello and the Attractions, and a gig in Nashville which was attended by Adrian Ballou, who will be showing up in a larger role later in our story. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, Seymour Stein was faced with a quandary. Sire Records had signed a distribution deal with WEA, also known as Warner Brothers, and the label was looking to push the Ramones, Richard Hell, the Dead Boys, and Talking Heads as part of a New York scene that was being called punk. The problem was that punk was radio poison in the U.S., no one was going to play punk records on mainstream rock stations outside of the major cities of New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. So Stein, perhaps inspired by the art background of Talking Heads, began to refer to the band using a term that had been sparingly used by a few rock critics earlier in the decade to refer to acts like the Velvet Underground and Roxy Music, New Wave. Stein and Sire's public relations team would correct journalists, radio programmers, and music store buyers whenever Talking Heads would be called punk. Not punk, new wave. The term spread quickly to describe other acts that would be either punk-adjacent or just clearly not standard mid-70s rock, despite the fact that many of these acts were not even remotely similar in their sound or ethos. We will cover this in more detail in future episodes. Meanwhile, Talking Heads began 1978 with another European tour, this time as a headliner. act for the continental portion of the tour was an English group named XTC whose debut album White Music would be coming out soon. For the UK portion of the tour, their support act was an unsigned group who the band liked the demo of, Dire Straits. After the tour, the group would begin recording their second album, More Songs About Buildings and Food, at the brand new Compass Point Studio in Nassau, Bahamas. The studio had been built by Island Records founder Chris Blackwell as an alternate to studios in Jamaica in response to the assassination attempt on Bob and Rita Marley just over a year before. Brian Eno was brought in to produce the sessions, where he was surprisingly hands-off with the exception of adding small treatments to instruments and suggesting the band play their cover of Al Green's Take Me to the River as slowly as they could without losing the groove. Thank you. 
Most songs were completed in two or three takes, and the available outtakes from the sessions show that the band were really in lockstep after having played most of the songs for the new album live for a year or so before entering the studio. The album would be the first Talking Heads LP to be certified gold based on the strength of their first top 40 hit, the aforementioned Take Me to the River, which slowly crept up the charts from its initial release in June 1978 to its eventual peak of 26 on the pop charts in early 1979. As part of the promotion for the single, the band appeared on Saturday Night Live in early 1979 and lip-synced the song on American Bandstand, complete with an amazingly awkward interview with Dick Clark. It must be three or four years since Richard began to tell me about this, the music that you people were making. You, you don't like to give it a name, David. No, not really. It's taken you all over the world. Somebody over there said, if I had my chance, I'd, I'd record in England. Another lady said France. Have you been to those two countries? Yeah, we've been to both of those. Were you well received? I thought so. <laughs> Is he always this enthusiastic, Tina? Does he bubble over like this? I mean, just set the world on fire? I guess he's organically shy. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta write that. Are you a shy person? I'd say so. How do you... How on earth, then, do you get up in front of people and do this? I mean, do you flog yourself into it? Are you not an extrovert? No. I always figure I don't know the people. I get really nervous if there's friends out there. While in Los Angeles for the taping of American Bandstand, the group had a meeting with Phil Spector at the suggestion of Seymour Stein, ostensibly about producing their next album, but Spectre outweirded the weird, and Talking Heads let Sire Records know they were set on having Brian Eno back to produce their next record. The first two Talking Heads albums were filled with songs that had been composed over the course of years, refined on the road, and only then brought to the studio. For their third album, the band began to create songs via jamming. Once they found a groove that they all liked, they would record a few measures of that and then go back to jamming until they found another groove, which they would then also record. Finally, they would then work on linking the two grooves together, usually through the creation of a bridge, which gave the song its musical framework. At that point, Byrne would go off on his own to compose the lyrics. In addition, the band decided to use their loft as the studio for the main recordings and set up with a mobile studio. The songs were starting to stretch out in new directions, such as the album's opening track, I Zimbra.
Influenced by Nigerian highlife and the Afrobeat of Fela Kuti, the track also featured lyrics adapted from the Dadaist sound poem Gaji Beri Bimba by the German poet Hugo Ball. Eno reached out to guitarist Robert Fripp, with whom he had recorded two albums, No Pussyfooting and Evening Star, earlier in the 70s, to contribute some processed guitar to the track. Band members were frequent visitors to the hippest clubs in New York City, including the Mud Club, which featured a stage for live music, a second floor for DJs, and an exhibition space for art, a format then followed by the newly opened Danceteria, another hangout for talking heads. They would play out in these venues, testing out the new material, which led to some name checks in the lead single from the album, Life During Wartime. The album Fear of Music was a critical success, with the national music press anointing them the next big thing, and Byrne specifically being singled out as a genius, which would open up the first small cracks in the band's unity. Talking Heads toured throughout the summer of 1979, doing their first shows in New Zealand, Australia, and Japan, continuing on through Europe. At the conclusion of the tour, Literally after the final show in West Berlin, Harrison, Weymouth, and Franz were asked by a journalist what they planned on doing now that David Byrne was leaving the group. Thank you. That's it. Uh, don't bother. Don't bother clapping. That's all we're going to do. This came as a bit of a shock to the group as they had absolutely no idea that Byrne was even thinking about leaving. Exhausted from a half year on the road, the rest of the band held their tongues and went home to New York for Christmas. After the holidays, Franz was asked to play drums by Byrne on a project he was working on with Brian Eno.
was never told if it was going to be Talking Heads music or something else, but he did return from the session and told the rest of the band that Byrne and Eno were recording with Busta Jones on bass and Robert Fripp on guitar. Since they hadn't been told that Talking Heads were no more, the group, sans David Byrne, decided to get back into the studio and start jamming. They asked Eno if he would produce their next album, and he refused. So, they asked if he just wanted to come over to the loft and jam with the group, which he agreed to do. The sessions were going well. So well, in fact, that they invited David to come and jam, which he couldn't resist, and soon the group and Eno were headed down to Compass Point in the Bahamas to record their next album. The songs for this album would begin as rhythms, laid down by Franz and Weymouth, who had no idea what Eno, Harrison, and Byrne were going to do with them. three would take these live loops and layer their core instrumentals over top. Even today, the band members agree that these sessions were special. Everyone was aware of just how great the music they were making was. At least, it was in Nassau. When the group returned to New York for overdubs and vocals, Byrne and Eno reverted to being the artistic genius archetypes and began to push the rest of the group out of the sessions. Franz and Weymouth set about getting the album cover designed, which they did with the help of some fans from MIT who used a large mainframe computer to help design the artwork. At this point, the working title of the album was Melody Attack, which helps explain the use of the photo of Grumman Avenger fighter planes as part of the jacket art. Back in the studio, Byrne and Eno were struggling with linking parts of a song that would wind up being cross-eyed and painless. Franz suggested, rather than singing the section of the song that was giving them trouble, he could just rap the lyrics sans melody and played him a new record by Curtis Blow called The Breaks. If your woman steps out with another man, that's the breaks, that's the and she runs off with him to Japan, that's the breaks, that's the and the IRS says they want to chat, and you can't explain why you claim you can't. And my bell sends you a whopping bill With 18 phone calls to Brazil And you borrowed money from the mob The final take was recorded by Byrne immediately after listening to the record. Adrian Ballou added solos to Cross-Eyed and Painless and The Great Curve, while percussionist Jose Rossi overdubbed sections to several more tracks. Nona Hendricks contributed some multi-tracked backing vocals, and Remain in Light was ready for mixing. 
Franz maintains in his autobiography, Remain in Love, that the group had agreed to credit and split the songwriting equally between all members of the group, but the final product credits all songs to, quote, David Byrne and Brian Eno, except The Overload and Houses in Motion, written by David Byrne, Brian Eno, and Jerry Harrison. It seems very unlikely that the contributions of the rhythm section of the band on Remain in Light could be considered to have contributed nothing to the creation of those songs. Eno and Byrne maintained that the album would be impossible to play live, and so there would be no tour. The band decided to do two gigs, the Heatwave Festival in Toronto and Central Park, New York City, and would bring in additional musicians to try and capture some of the sound of Remain in Light. Busta Jones, who had worked with the group before, was brought in as an additional bassist, along with keyboardist Bernie Worrell from Parliament Funkadelic, percussionist Steve Scales, who had just finished a tour with Ashford and Simpson, singer Dillette McDonald, who grew up attending the church where Sister Rosetta Tharp's husband, the bishop, was the pastor, Nona Hendricks, who had been a member of LaBelle and was currently in between record contracts at the time, and Adrian Ballou, who had previously worked with Frank Zappa and David Bowie, in addition to playing on two songs on Remain in Light. Now we're going to do a few new songs from our album we just finished. shows were utterly transformative. The audiences had not yet heard Remain in Light, and the effect of having the additional musicians and singers made even the older material shine. Sixteen candles The band could tell how powerful their sound was, and the Central Park concert was recorded and would later feature prominently on their first live album. Launching into the new, as yet unreleased songs in New York City, Byrne warns the crowd, which included an aspiring filmmaker named Jonathan Demi. We're not like we used to be anymore. <laughs> After the full Remain in Light tour, 
David Byrne set out to record a solo project, The Catherine Wheel, which in turn sent Jerry Harrison into the studio on a solo project of his own, The Red and the Black. Chris Franz and Tina Weymouth were told by their accountant that they would need some income if the band wasn't going to be out playing or recording, so the couple set out to find some fellow musicians to record with. Island Records agreed to a single, and if they liked it, an album. They flew to the Bahamas, bought an apartment near the recording studio, and commenced work on a few tracks with the idea of creating songs that would get played in the clubs and discos back home in New York City. After hearing the first track, Wordy Rapping Hood, the label greenlit the album. Words of nuance, words of skill, and words of romance are a thrill. Words are stupid, words are fun, words can put you on the run. Mots pressés, mots sensés, mots qui disent la vérité, mots maudits, mots mentis, mots qui manquent le fruit d'esprit. That single would be a bigger hit in England. Back in the States, the second single, Genius of Love, would be the first song to go gold for any members of Talking Heads. Heads released an excellent live album, The Name of This Band is Talking Heads, in 1982 to offer fans some new material while the solo projects were being worked on. The double LP documented the early four-piece band on the first LP, with the A-side being devoted to the promotional show they recorded in 1977, and the B-side capturing five cuts from a 1979 show at the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey. There's a party in my mind And the party never stops There's a party up there all the time There's a party till the clock And everybody The new expanded touring lineup would be featured on the second LP, with tracks coming from the now-famous Central Park gig and a show from Emerald City in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, later in 1980. The 
album would be expanded to include almost twice as many tracks on the 2004 remastering, and it is a benchmark in how to remaster and expand a live album that many bands and labels could learn a thing or two about. The group headed back into the studio in 1982, continuing the formula of jamming tunes with Byrne writing lyrics afterwards, albeit without Brian Eno this time. The first track they jammed began with Chris Franz shouting out a chant he'd heard a Parliament Funkadelic crowd shouting before a show a year earlier. Burn down the house! Burn down the house! Heads took a break from recording to tour Europe and America, then returned to Nassau to finish up what would become known as Speaking in Tongues. Parted ways with Brian Eno on not the greatest of terms, the group asked Tony Visconti if he would produce their next LP. Visconti declined, telling them, you don't need a producer, you just need a great engineer. Tina Weymouth would give birth to her and Chris Franz's first child, Robin, during the sessions. Byrne and Harrison would fly back to New York, while the new parents would remain in the Caribbean for a few more weeks. Back in New York, the final mixes were completed for Speaking in Tongues, and the lead single would become the first gold record for the group. And the band began to discuss a tour, but a tour unlike their previous ones, which had consisted of the band playing on stage with little else going on but the music. Talking Heads were approached by Jonathan Demme about recording their upcoming tour for a concert film. The group were fans of his first film, Melvin and Howard, and agreed to the project, which they self-financed so they could keep full creative control over the project. Demi, for his part, wanted to forego the usual interviews with the band, crew, and fans that usually filled concert films, and also eschewed the quick jump cuts that were everywhere on MTV at the time. Talking Heads would create a stage show based in three parts, a straightforward run-through of their earlier material, starting with Just Burn and a boombox on stage. Hi, I got a tape I want to play. Yeah. 
up to the facts I'm so nervous, can't relax Can't sleep, fed from fire Don't touch me, I'm a real life Adding more and more band members to the stage, culminating with the new single, Burning Down the House. Then a middle section that is more whimsical and, well, fun that ends with the group Sands Burn jamming Genius of Love. And a final section, announced by Byrne re-emerging from backstage in his now famous oversized jacket for a three-song finale capped off by the ecstatic jam, Cross-Eyed and Painless. As the final notes fade out, we didn't know at the time that it would be the final performance of the group playing at their absolute peak. The end of the tour also signaled the end of the band as a group of like-minded artists collaborating and creating songs together, as Byrne, for the first time, arrived at the sessions for their next album with song demos. And song demos that were decidedly not based on the Afrocentric jams of the past, but pastoral Americana. The group, by all accounts, enjoyed the sessions, with Weymouth commenting in a contemporary New York Times article, quote, It's so much fun to be able to relax and just play without feeling you have to be avant-garde all the time. We spent so many years trying to be original that we don't know what original is anymore, unquote. Burns' vocals were, for lack of a better word, comfortable, which was in stark contrast to his edgy, strained voice that had been a hallmark of earlier Talking Heads records. Yeah. 
and it all gelled. The album, Little Creatures, would go on to be the group's best-selling, spawning three hit singles, with only one of them, Stay Up Late, sounding much like previous Talking Head songs. Talking Heads had moved on from New Wave, and it signaled the beginning of the end for the genre. If Little Creatures was the end of the band collaborating on the writing of songs with Byrne, True Stories was the album where Talking Heads became sidemen for the David Byrne show. The songs were all written for the film True Stories, which was written and directed by Byrne. Surprisingly, the rest of the group also has good memories of the recording of this album, which commenced even as Little Creatures was still being mixed. album and movie received mixed reviews, but there are some truly wonderful moments on that record, such as the raucous puzzling evidence. Wild Wild Life won an MTV Music Award and the single charted in the top 40. True Stories, the group reconvened to work on their follow-up LP and decided to move back to the more collaborative jam-based approach that they had used back in the early 80s, with the group jamming together in Franz and Weymouth's loft in New York and working out song structures based on those jams.
Then the group traveled to Paris, where they would record the rest of the instrumentals with guitarist Yves Nijak and Johnny Marr, percussionist Abdou Umboup, and Bryce Wasi, and chora player More Kante. The resulting album, Naked, was a blend of Remain in Light and Little Creatures, and was very well received. Franz and Weymouth began work on Tom Tom Club's third record, Boom Boom Chiboom Boom, and had laid down the basic track for a cover of the Velvet Underground's Femme Fatale, and asked Lou Reed if he'd like to record some guitar for the track. He said yes, and then Franz asked Byrne and Harrison if they wanted to come over and play with Lou Reed, which of course they did. This would be the last studio recording with all four members of Talking Heads playing together. Everybody knows In 1991, Harrison, Weymouth, and Franz found out that Byrne had told the press that talking heads were broken up, which was news to them and wasn't the first time he'd made that claim. This time, however, Byrne was also making moves behind the scenes to formalize the breakup. As is usual with most band breakups, this one was acrimonious with lots of accusations made and dirty laundry aired, but it is telling that Talking Heads tried unsuccessfully to lure David back to the fold in 1994, ultimately releasing an album called No Talking, Just Head, with different singers, each of whom wrote their own vocals on each track in the style of most Talking Heads albums in the past. It is also telling that the end result showed that perhaps the band were, in fact, the sum of their parts, as without Burn, the songs were fine, but not great. In 2001, Talking Heads were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and fans were surprised to hear that the group agreed to perform together for the event. The four founding members would rehearse together along with Steve Scales and Bernie Worrell, leading to a brief three-song reunion Heard of a fireman is loaded with weapons, packed up and ready to go. Heard of some gravesites out by the highway, a place where nobody knows. Sound of gunfire off in the distance, I'm getting used to it now.
As we begin 2024, that remains the last time Talking Heads performed together. In 2023, the group reunited in person for several press appearances to promote the 40th anniversary release of the film Stop Making Sense in IMAX and seemed to get along well enough, although they adroitly avoided answering any questions about the group playing music together again. Jerry Harrison and Adrian Ballou toured in 2023 playing Remain in Light in its entirety along with other Talking Head songs and will continue the tour into 2024. David Byrne most recently toured with his Broadway show American Utopia, which was filmed by Spike Lee and released on HBO in 2020. Chris Franz and Tina Weymouth last performed live in 2013 as Tom Tom Club. But perhaps the final word ends up with David Byrne, who has already provided an answer many years ago when questioned about a reunion. Quote, It's like being told you should get back with your first wife. You guys were good together. Well, I think most people would pass on an offer like that. You've been listening to Moving in Stereo, a podcast about new wave music and the artists who made it. Moving in Stereo was written, produced, and performed by me, Dylan Johnson. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to like and follow, and please tell a friend.